0: Back to First Corinthians chapter 7. I hope that I have uh, been able to convey the uh, contents of this book in a, not entertaining way, but in a uh, way that uh, keeps your attention and that you find fresh and uh, certainly clear. Uh, I, I find... Book of First Corinthians, and we'll find the same thing in Second Corinthians. Just uh, say every page is full of important and interesting material, and Chapter Seven is no uh, exception, as it deals primarily with marriage and divorce. And uh, but in, in a continuing way, the whole subject that we've been seeing here since Chapter Five is not understanding. Uh, what our sex what godly sexuality is and, and so it kind of comes to a head here as uh, Paul kind of brings it all together So I hope that you want to keep that in mind. I'll try to explain that as we uh, go on uh, but if you think about what we studied in uh, Chapter 6 the idea of Gnosticism or dualism the idea that that which is spiritual is pure and good and anything material fleshly is evil and without thinking too hard, you can realize how people can become to see bodily urges, functions, and things as kind of a necessary evil, if not something we should abstain from altogether. Well, let's be, but that is not biblical teaching. God gave us our bodies. And so, uh, we finished in chapter 6 with these ideas. Gnosticism or dualism is unbiblical teaching that matter is inherently evil. Only spirit is good. So the idea then is that it doesn't matter what our bodies are doing as long as we keep our spirits pure, or it goes the other way, and because of that we don't want to get into any kind of bodily urges at all because it's all bad, right? Equally unbiblical is the concept that as long as I follow the rules and do good outwardly, it doesn't matter what's going on in my heart. That becomes moralism and legalism. Uh, Again, the the video I sent out to to you uh, plays to what we dealt with in Sunday school, but even that you can see has something to do with the idea that, like in the video I sent, which again, a lot of you haven't read that, but uh, it's hilarious, but it deals with the the, the statement, the, the idea that how I... The length of my hair determines how spiritual I am, right? And, and that's, that's the reason why I said that out, and you see it comes into play a little bit, even with this. Um, so our bodies then, Paul says, instead of looking at it like that, our bodies house the Spirit of God, therefore we are to sanctify them for the Lord's use. The Lord made our bodies to function as they do, and that was before the fall, so it's all good, but as long as it's used please and serve the Lord. Our souls and our bodies have been purchased by the blood of Christ, and so through both creative and redemptive right, He is our Lord and Master, and we do all things for His glory, both soul and body. Then we finish with the, uh, the threefold idea of we have become slaves, uh, to sin by birth, by being joined to Adam, by conquest, as Satan has, uh, rules us in that sense, and our sin rules us and by debt is that we have transgressed God's law and we owe him that which we cannot give because we're sinners but the good news is that in the cross Jesus has given us a new birth we are now born from above undoing our original birth ultimately anyway he has defeated our enemies and he has paid sin's death so all those ways that we have been enslaved by sin Christ frees us in the cross that brings us to chapter 7 and as Jeff pointed out I think what we're going to see here is that the, the proper way to understand especially verse 1 is to see this not as Paul making a statement that, he's, that he would have to retract or clarify Paul is not saying that it is good overall for people not to have sex That, that there's so many things wrong with that that I think for people to think that's what Paul is saying just adds confusion. What he is doing is what we have already seen in 1 Corinthians, we saw it a couple of times, even in uh, three times, at least in chapter 6. He is taking statements that the Corinthians have made, and they have, and they have, they have, they have, they have an element of truth but they have gone completely in the wrong direction. So Paul says, now concerning these matters that you have written, and one of them are... Those who are telling us it is good to abstain from sex altogether, it is good to abstain from marriage, uh, because all that is icky, all that is sinful, all that leads to problems, and all that, that Gnostic idea. And Paul is going to clarify all that and say no. And that's, so that's how I'm going to come at this, and I believe that that, in its context, will make the most sense. In other words, we can't read verse 1. And uh forget what the rest of the Bible says. There are many places in the Bible that make it very clear that marriage and uh the act of marriage are given by God. Uh, Paul probably, and I'll maybe anyway, wrote Hebrews, which says the marriage bed is undefiled. Right? It's a gift of God. So Paul is not here stating that, well, yes, it's a necessary evil. No. It's a gift of God, but there there's certain ramifications that we have to, to understand. And so we would expect that if this came from God, as it does, that Paul would not contradict himself, and God would not contradict other parts of Scripture. So they have asked Paul some difficult questions, and he is answering them. So I think that fits well into the context. But before we come down too hard on the Corinthians, who clearly had some issues and were asking some hard questions and had gone off into some wrong directions. Let's remember the world that they lived in. The reasons why they were struggling, especially in this area. They did not have a biblical background. Their culture was wholly pagan. They had no idea, for the most part, what the Bible said about marriage. They didn't have any examples around them. And we live in a day that's, that's not just becoming like that, but has in many ways become like that. I wouldn't be surprised if half the people you ask in, in America today, "What does the Bible say is a good uh, marriage and family life?" They'd have no clue, right? So, uh, don't let's let's be careful here that we don't just point the finger at the Corinthians, because we live in a day and age in which this is not being taught, and people are doing the same things the Corinthians are doing. In this day, a marriage could take four forms. A tent marriage, as it was sometimes called, which would be between slaves, and because they were slaves, a master could separate them, uh, you know, send, sell off one or the other spouse, and then they would perhaps marry again. I mean, that it was a, it was a very sad situation. There was also common law marriages, as we have today, where you just lived together and you were eventually considered married. There were arranged marriages from the parents. And then it would be what we would call, the, what we kind of understand marriage to be, where people would fall in love and they would get married. In fact, much of our traditions for marriage come from the uh, what was carried on in Rome, where you have participation from both families. You would have a maid of honor and a best man. You would exchange vows. You would exchange rings on the third finger. Those are things that were done in Rome. But the problem is you also had all the perversity of the Roman world and the Greek world. You had uh, adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, concubinage, divorce, um, and so forth. And then you had prostitution, which was an essential part of Greek life. The Corinthians, remember, the thousand temple prostitutes would come down and by being joined to her, you were participating in the worship of the gods. So you, 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 so now you've got to all of a sudden go from seeing that as a religious act to an act that defiles the body and dishonors the Lord. You see, So there were struggles here. Demosthenes, a, a Greek, had laid down a very common accepted rule of life when he said, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure, We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. That's just how it was. Nobody thought anything of it. So by the time of Paul, the Roman family was, the family life was wrecked. Seneca writes that women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. In Rome, the Roman women did not commonly date their years by numbers, yet by an age they would call them by the names of their husbands. So uh, one Roman poet tells of a woman who had ten husbands. Uh, another one tells us of one who had eight husbands in five years. Jerome declares it to be true that in Rome there was a woman who was married to her 23rd husband, and she herself was his 21st wife. We find even the Roman Emperor Augustus demanding that a man would divorce a woman that he had been with, uh, so that he could marry her, because I think she bore his child. Cicero, in his old age, put away his or wanted to put away his wife, Terentia, that he might marry a young heiress, whose trustee he was. That he might enter into her estate in order to pay his debts. So, you know, I, I, I gotta divorce you because I gotta marry this woman because, you know, I'm in debt. This is what you got going on. And in Paul's day, Judaism wasn't faring all that much better in some ways. Especially when it came to women in marriage. Josephus, the historian Josephus wrote, the woman is worse than the man in everything. No wonder, then, in light of such harsh attitudes, that one synagogue prayer book that a man would quote uh, every day in his daily prayer life said, "I thank thee, O Lord, that I that thou hast not made me a gentile nor a woman." So it's no surprise that we've got these things going on, and between that and Gnosticism and all the perversity of the culture. That there was a movement in the Christian community to let's just avoid marriage altogether, because I mean, you know, look at all the things that's going on, and to avoid marriage and sex altogether, and that's the prevailing thought in this chapter. It's the thing that it's the reason why Paul is laying these things down, because that's behind all these things. It's better. so a woman perhaps who gets saved and she's got an unsaved, um, husband, well I don't, you know, I shouldn't be with him because that's awful so I need to divorce him. And Paul says no, no, there's a right and proper way to think about these things. So it's kind of behind everything he's gonna say. Hmm. The problem is that this is not the biblical approach to sin. It's not the biblical approach to uh, how we deal with these kind of activities. And so Paul is saying here, not so fast. Let's work through this biblically. We, let's be careful that we don't make a law that one should not get married or have sex because that just increases all these problems and leads to other and can lead to other sins. No. It's a good gift from God. And so the answer is not to just abstain from it altogether, but to do it the way God has commanded us to do it. And that only makes sense, but again, you can kind of understand with all the baggage and philosophy that they had, why they were struggling with this. And so in verse 1, like all scripture, we must read this in the light of everything else said about marriage. He isn't just saying it is good to avoid fornication. And he isn't saying that a man can't ever physically touch a woman. Of course, that's not the subject. When he says it's good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman, I, like, I believe the KJV says it is it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Obviously he's not just talking about physical contact, but in the sexual relationship. But most importantly, he isn't saying that it is bad for a man to marry or for anyone to marry as some have taken it. Again, this is not Paul laying down a, a a truism. He's saying, okay, this is what this is the question I've been asked, and I want you to understand the problem with it, as we saw in chapter 6. It's always dangerous when we make the Bible say more than it does, and uh, it's clear here in, in the ESV translation that they understand this statement, that they put it in quotes, because they understand this to be a statement by the church a question that they send to Paul. So this is not Paul making a general statement that marriage or sex is better to be avoided, but this is what they are asking Paul, this is the tendency, this is the conclusion that some have come to in Corinth and are trying to impose that on the Corinthian church. So I think as we read further, it seems he is correcting the idea that it is better to just avoid it altogether, married or not. So Paul is not saying that being single is better or to be preferred than marriage. Later he will uh, talk about this uh, further. There are some advantages in that day, and even in our day, for staying single. There are those of the God that God calls to be single, and when we say single, we're talking about celibate. When God gives a person a gift for certain reasons, and they never marry, and they they are celibate for their lives, so that they can serve the Lord for whatever reason, that's perfectly good. But that's not the norm, and the, and the Bible never says that that's the at the better state to be. That's one of the the, the uh, abuses of the Catholic Church, where they have Forced uh, celibacy upon men and women, and it has led to all sorts of problems because of it. it's not the way we were made. But there are those who, for whatever reason, do not ever marry and do remain celibate, and that's okay. And we'll deal a little with that as we go through the chapter. But he's not saying that that's to be preferred above marriage. Obviously, marriage is the norm, and. and he gives the reason why it's in, in verse 2. Because as a rule, the, this is uh, something that we have to deal with. So when it comes to serving in the kingdom, sometimes a single person has advantages. And down in verses 32 and 33, for the present distress, the, the persecution that was going on, you can understand why a man did not want to take the responsibility of a wife and family when it is very possible that he would lose his life. Uh, shortly, right, and you just you didn't need that kind of, of problems. But you'll notice that the reason he is speaking of, the reasons that he will give for remaining celibate, single, are not the ones that we hear today. The Bible never says, "Well, you know, I know you don't want to be tied down to one person, so it's it's okay to not get married." Because again, to be single is to be celibate. There's no hint in scripture that would be anything else but that, right? Or, well, in order, I, I've got a career, I don't have time to be married and have a family, I've got a concentrate of my career. That's nonsense. That, that's, to me, you're, 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 life is not about making money, not, not that that a career is not important to some degree, but to give up the best part of life, which to me is a, is a family, uh, for, because you've got to make money? Uh you got to be very careful about some of that. Certainly, uh the idea that I, I'm not going to get married because I, I, I'm not ready to have children, I don't want to have children, or anything like that it is a horrible uh reason not to get married. Children, believe me, and you know, I hope we all understand that, children are one of the things that bring fulfillment to life. Because you have to have children to be fulfilled, right? But As a rule, that's how it works. Calvin, John Calvin explains his point very well using the example of other necessities. He explains Paul's point. He says that under certain circumstances, it would be good not to eat, drink, or sleep. But that's far from saying that it's never good to do those things. And that's what we're going to find with Paul. He's saying that there are circumstances where being single works for some, but he's not saying that that's the preferred state. So you see it immediately contradicts this question about it's good for a man not to touch or not to, uh, have sex, sexual relationships with a woman. So his point is the exception to what is otherwise the norm. Another reason we know this is because God says that it is not good for a man to be alone in, in, in the garden when God created man. It's overall, it's not, man was made in men and women. And kind were made to have relationships and to have this intimate relationship. So Paul cannot be contradicting that. The Jews in his day saw willing singleness as disobedience. And again, that again, you can always err going too far one way or another. And so they kind generally saw that anybody who did not get remarried for whatever reason was being disobedient, as if, as if God had commanded people to get married. Many Gentiles tended to look at singleness as preferred due to their dualism. So you've got you've got both errors. You got it's a sin not to be married or it's a sin to be married, right? And so Paul is addressing especially the the Gentile form. Jews should be under pressure to get married, Gentiles not so. But Paul says there are other things that we need to consider. And I would just remind ourselves, parents especially, that as much as we want our children to get married and have grandchildren and all that kind of stuff, if the Lord calls them to something else, we've got to be careful that we don't put pressure where we shouldn't to be supportive. As long as the reasons are right, we've got to be very careful here that, we, that what we want isn't projected upon perhaps our children in this matter. And so verse 2, because of this, of the temptation to sexual immorality, it is, each man should have his own wife and each woman is her own husband. And you can understand, it's, it's ridiculous to say that it's good not to, uh, get married because God made us sexual creatures. And since, oh, that can only be, uh, practiced legally or in a godly way in marriage to, to cut that off, uh, it's going to cause you to have, um, uh, the, as he says, to burn, and I think in the KJV says, to burn uh, these temptations needlessly. In other words, God didn't make us like that. We know that Paul had a much higher view of marriage. It's not just a necessary evil for procreation, as some teach. It's more than just pleasure. It's I mean, it's also pleasure. It's, it's a fulfillment of relationship and partnership. You know, a good marriage, you can't describe how wonderful that is. It's also, marriage is a statement, as we've talked about many times, an illustration of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It is the statement of the gospel. So marriage is a wonderful thing. Marriage was established, remember, by God before the fall. So anybody who says that marriage is a necessary evil, it's better to remain single, uh, doesn't have a leg to stand on biblically. And it doesn't work in, naturally either. And so verse 2 is reminding us that marriage is good. And I think he uses this example to make the point that it is to be preferred because the way we are sexually it is to be preferred above singleness for that reason. <laughs> to live in the Corinthian culture as today to remain unmarried would lead to many sins and many temptations. And so it's just not the way that we are made. Forced celibacy leads to challenges that are not necessarily dealt with very well either. You know, you think about it, because to remain single brings these temptations upon you, and if you haven't been gifted by God to deal with those things, you're not going to do very well. So, singleness was never meant to be the norm or preferred, but under certain circumstances it can be good and valid, alternative, and we'll get to that in the chapter. Verse 3, so, it's good to get married, marriage is good, but then he says, now, understand, again, the point here is that physical contact, contact is, dirty in some way. It's not as pure as, as the Spirit. So he says in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. It, it is good and proper, and it is your duty to do that, not to abstain from it. So you see, he's, he's, he's answering these questions. These are obligations that we have. And it's sad and clearly there are unsound reasoning going on when there is a gift. What What is to be a gift and expression of love and a way to build a strong relationship within marriage is viewed as something that should be avoided. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. You got you guys don't understand what you're saying. Probably when one, as I said before, one spouse would get saved, they would assume that they should be celibate, that they should be joined to the unsaved person going to say no. That's not the answer either, because in marriage it's okay, it's good, even though in that case they were unsaved. So first of all, notice that he is not speaking just to men and just to women when he says this. He, he says, "Husbands, you you are to you have a, a responsibility to your wife, and your wife to your husband. The husband does not have the right to decide when and how often any more than the wife." And again how this elevates, not just marriage, but elevates women and and gets rid of any idea that the man controls this in some way. That that it doesn't really matter what the wife wants, it's all about the men. That's a perverted view of sexual activity. And and, and this is an important verse, and it's one that has, throughout the generations, caused many problems. People don't understand this. Such an attitude repudiates what loving your spouse and seeking to meet their needs is all about. It's not just given for the man, it's given for both. Likewise, the husband the wife cannot use it as a weapon or punishment or manipulation. You know, sometimes we joke about those kind of things, but be careful there, because all is very clear here. Now we could go on and hear more, but but Some of this would be more appropriate in a private counseling if there were more questions. But This is an area that one can easily get very mixed up about because there are so many, you know, we all are different physically. We all have different backgrounds. But Paul assumes a healthy relationship here. And it is not to be seen as anything but a mutually satisfying, enjoyable thing and not to be avoided except for short times, as he goes on to explain in verse 4. And as I think I've mentioned here not too long ago, most of my marital counseling through the years has been specifically to older people who have had abuse in the background, who have not been able to just engage in this in a mutually satisfying way. They cannot give themselves to somebody else because it has it has been messed up in their life at some point, and it's an extremely sad situation. But if we can train our children right from the beginning, you won't hopefully avoid some of that. The Bible always hits the nail on the head, and here Paul says isolation in marriage will always lead to failure. He says there might be a reason you might some a partner might be fasting for some reason, and. Okay, for a while, if you if we need to be separate, fine. But that is to be a temporary thing. Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. It's continue action tense here. So Paul is saying that this is to continue throughout marriage. We are to develop and maintain an intimate relationship. And if things are bad, so bad that it fails here, then something is wrong, and it's our responsibility to fix it and not to make excuses. In other words, this is something God has given us so that you can have a good relationship, a strong relationship with your spouse. And if it's not working, something's wrong, and humble yourself enough to admit that and seek help. Do what you got to do, and I speak to men in particular because if you think that only, um, it's your responsibility to make sure that you have a healthy relationship here and, and, and not to just avoid it because you don't like to talk about your feelings or, or things like that. And also, I would say that if you're, if you think that Paul is only talking about the bedroom, then think again. But well, this is what it, it needs for, to be for all of us, especially women when we, or right, if we're going to have a close relationship, we have to have a good relationship in every other room in the house. You're not fulfilling your obligation to your wife if you treat her like dirt. I'm, I'm just is an example. The rest of the time, and think that you you can uh, well I'm going to fulfill my obligation in the bedroom. No, don't work that way. And again, I won't go any further than that. It should be obvious to anybody who's married. But don't you know we got to keep everything in mind. So, men, if you don't spend the time to be a close friend with your wife, then you are presenting the same temptations to her that Paul is addressing. You're tempting her to find companionship somewhere else. So, again, don't just think of it as the act. Think of it as the relationship. The act being part of that relationship. We need to be honest enough to see what's going on here. It's disheartening and dishonest to attempt to be strong against sin and to promote godliness, and then totally ignore this area. And it's proven like in 1 Peter chapter 3, remember where the men are told, husbands are told, that God will not answer your prayers if you don't live with your wife in a good and godly way, right? So if you don't spend time to be a close friend with your wife, then you're presenting to her problems, and that affects you spiritually. just because it's harder for a lot of men to have a close, intimate relationship doesn't mean that we're off the hook. It just shows you how sinful we are. might show cultural influences or whatever. Maybe you have to have a good example of your father. But acknowledge that and say, look, I have a responsibility here to satisfy my wife. Your wife has a responsibility to satisfy your husband and work towards that. And I've seen so many couples who are willing to live in unloving, cold relationships for decades because they don't want to get divorced. Divorce is wrong, but let's just live together and not be happy and not fulfill our obligation to each other when all you have to do is, is humble yourself and repent and say, look, I need help. What am I doing wrong? And... Do something to have it. Why not have a good relationship instead of a cold relationship and a bitter relationship? And it's amazing how often even Christians will settle for an an ungodly marriage because they don't believe in divorce, but they don't believe in repentance either. I guess and just doing the right thing. So it's sad sometimes, and we're all guilty. I know I'm certainly guilty in a lot of these things as well. None of this can be forced, but if we can obey the Lord here, it can be biblically a uh, biblical and a fulfilling the marriage can be. There must be a healthy relationship for this to work. Again, the re- one of the reasons I go into all this is because verses two and three cannot be obeyed. Or three and four cannot be obeyed simply by saying this is my duty. Right? It's got to be mutually Uh, satisfying, it's going to be something you both want and uh, as as I say in marriage counseling if you go into this with the idea of making myself happy you will not make your spouse happy but if you go into it with the idea of whatever I can do to please you then it will be a good thing so verse 4 then 4, and this is the reason why you could say verse 3 Four the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. I like how three and four is very clear to to, to equate the husband and wife. It doesn't the, the husband does not dominate this. It's not the husband's duty to say how often and all that. It's it's a mutual thing, and no one has more rights than the other. And again, if, if you get hold of this, marriage and the plight of women, especially, it'd just be so much better. Christianity always elevates the, the state of women. So he says, when you put that ring on on your finger, your relationship to your body, and even to yourself, changes dramatically. To think that you have the right to live without considering what you're doing to your spouse is the worst kind of sin. Notice again that one has no more authority than the other. So, and again, it's good because it's, it's, if, if you go into a marriage, you don't realize that when I get married, my body is no longer my own. I don't have this total. I have I have someone else to consider because you know a lot of people don't like to think that way. Well, it's my body. You know, all right. You got women today. My body, my choice. No, your husband. Uh, Assuming there is a husband, has every right to that uh, decision as you do. And of course, not not that there's a decision to be made, but you understand the problem here. And a man goes into it, well, you know, no one tells me what to do with my body. Well, if you're married, yes, that's not totally true. Now, this doesn't mean that you can force something on the other person. Don't read it like that. Verse 4, you know, verse 4, that I have no authority over my body or that I. Or that a husband can say, well I have authority over your body. This is a mutual thing. It doesn't mean that you can force uh, something on someone that they're uncomfortable with or they don't want. That's not the, that, that defeats the whole purpose of the passage. It means you can't see your body as just for you. So don't make it more than it is. Understand what Paul's saying. This is something, this is a mutual thing. You're here for each other. You're not here just for yourself. And again, you think about marriages and you think about just relationships in general. When you jump into this and it's all about me, it's ruined from the start. And Paul saying, look, all you got to do is realize that marriage is about us. It's about satisfying and making the other person happy, not just yourself. And that would transform, I think, many marriages. Then in verse 5, he goes on to say, do not deprive one another except by Perhaps, again, it's just in case, perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-consult. It, it, this is a needful thing by the way we are made. So Paul shows the practicality of this, because in a healthy relationship, the problem will sometimes be self-control. There will be times when there is disinterest, there's tiredness, there's sickness, there's a lot of different things emotionally and upset. All these things come into play, but here refers to time of spiritual activity when there's when it's okay temporarily to to you know to say no, but they're to be temporary. There's never any reason to go a long time, and, and I might add, why would you? But again, all sorts of crazy things that go on in our minds sometimes. But clearly something is wrong if you want to avoid your spouse in this way, especially if you love the Lord and you love them. But if we're called to exercise self-control in all things for Christ's sake, then we should be able to uh, exercise self-control in this area as well. So for the cause of Christ, we should be able to deny ourselves for the sake of the other now and then but also have the self-control to be faithful to our spouses as well. And I wonder how many Christian couples enter marriage and never think about any of this. And perhaps some of us have. We just never really think of the biblical reasons and responsibilities for marriage. We just see it as a way to get sex or or, have children or whatever, but we just really kind of miss the point sometimes. So God's plan was never for divorce or separation of these matters, nor was it for singleness originally either. And if you think about it, sin is what introduced not just divorce, but also the need for singleness. I think in an unfallen world, there would be no reason for singleness. So all this is, is much more than just about your hormonal condition. All this is done in service to the Lord, because he's the one who gave it to us to begin with. It's an expression of love, and you know, just saying I don't feel like it cannot be the end of it. Now you might be thinking, well, Pastor, this is really my business and nobody else's business, and that's exactly what Paul is saying. Not really. Be careful there. The Bible is addressing these issues because God is the one who has given us these things. As we just saw, you're bought with a price. Your body is not your own. And a lot of young people are not biblically prepared for marriage due to the failure in their parents because they have not taught them that no, when you get married, there's no time in, in your life where you're you're your own. You don't have no one can tell you what to do. Because God gave you that life. You're always under the obligation to him, and when you get married, you also have someone else to bring into the mix. So be careful of the attitude that, well, it's nobody else's business. Yes, if you're, between you and your wife and the Lord, it's nobody else's business, these things. But the Lord is the one who controls all that stuff. And I would just say, in passing, because I've had to deal with it before, if, for instance, you, you commit adultery, and your wife comes to the church, to the elders of the church, whatever, with needing help in this matter, don't think that you can say as the husband, well, uh, the church can't interfere and it's my house and you can't, you have no say so in my marriage. Once you do that, the wife has every right to bring other people into the situation because you've got some serious things that must be dealt with. So be very careful there because I've, I've heard men say, well, yeah, I've committed, I committed adultery, but that's no one's business but me and my wife. Wrong again. But you want to end up in divorce? But just some things to think about. Verse 6 and 7, then, we'll be be done. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. So he's just giving his advice. And and Paul's going to use some terminology that we've got to think about throughout this chapter. I'm going to give you some advice. It's not a command, not a command of the Lord. I'm not using my apostolic authority. I'm just saying that this is something to think about. I wish that all were as myself, as as I myself am, which, of course, was single unmarried, but each have their own gift from the Lord, one of one kind and one of another. He understands that while in his day there might be some good reason to stay single, if you don't have that gift, then that's okay. So he kind of sums up what he's saying here. He says that um, it's not a command to be single, but that for the right reasons it might be best for some. Uh, because you're no longer burdened with the things that married people are burdened with. You have more freedom to serve in the kingdom. But celibacy is a gift of God, and it's not given to most. So Paul does not speak of celibacy as a spiritually superior state than to be married, and that's where we have to make sure we understand that. It's a less distractive state when it comes to some service, but it's not superior. But if this is what God has called you for, then remember that while sometimes the calling of the Lord brings deprivation and hardship, in other words, if you maybe plan on getting married but it didn't work out that way, and for whatever reason God does not give you a family, God never gives gifts or calls somebody to some to something that they will lose out in the end. If you don't have a family in this life. What you will receive in heaven will more than make up for it. And I want to just to remind ourselves of that. Because, some, because sometimes God calls each of us to things and we don't have what somebody else has. God will not be a desert to anybody. If he calls you to give up something now, you, he will bless you in glory in ways that you cannot understand. So let me just close by... by Saying that there are some people that believe that Paul was married at one time, and so Paul isn't just speaking as if someone who was never married, but, uh, he does understand all these things, uh, primarily because of a couple of the verses. One in Acts. Remember when they, when they uh, are taking Stephen, they seize him, they bring him before the council, that was the Sanhedrin, and we know that Paul was there in the next chapter, we know they laid the, the, the coats at Paul's feet, and uh, so there's the assumption that he was part of the council, and to be part of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So that would be one reason. And in Galatians 14 Paul says that he advanced Judaism beyond many of my own age. He was orthodox of the orthodox, which would would indicate he probably was married. And if that's the case, his wife had either died or had divorced him because. She didn't want any part of his new religion, you might say. Whatever. And so Paul understands that, you know what? This is of the Lord. For what I've been called to do, it's better that I remain single. And he says there might be some of you out there that that's the case as well. Singleness gives one opportunities to serve that they would not have had if they were married. But both states take the grace of God. Neither are easy. And it's a tragic failure for married couples to live as if they are single, as Paul talks about in verses 3 and 4, to to be married and yet not have a good, healthy relationship here. That's a a disgrace. It's a sin. It's sad. It's ungodly. It's equally evil to be single and live as if you're married. To think that well, I can stay single and play the field. No, you can't, and that's just as ungodly and wrong as you know, neither case. So, I, and I think because we you know, we'll say, well, that's you know, that's wrong for, uh, to commit fornication. But if you're married and you don't have a good, healthy relationship here, you're still living in sin to some degree. So be careful. So the last thing to bring out here is that we must be careful of pressuring someone to get married because if God calls them to a life of singlehood, we would be fighting against God's will. So just be careful here, and as I said before. Well, okay, I think we've, we've covered enough for one a day. Again, there's just so many things in this chapter. I hope I'm being clear enough. But before we close, are there any questions or comments? Jeff? I hope that as we take this away today, you go home, especially if you're married, of course, and, uh, say, you know what? Some of these things we need to work on a little bit, a uh, good reminder, and, you know, let, let, let these kind of messages spur us on to have better relationships with our spouses, have more peace at home, more joy, uh, more everything, right? So let's not just walk away and forget. As James says, that you know, but we look in that mirror, let's see this, the, the dirt on our face and clean it off and see if God doesn't bless us for our efforts. Amen. I'm dismissed.